Well, for some of you, there may be the thought of, why did I sign up for this? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a few days ago, I was with um, my partner and she was getting some body work and, and I was interested to see the modality so I was in there watching I think it was shiatsu something I don't know too much about it it's a very wise person and he was saying that this pain that you're feeling in the work I'm not creating it. It's already here. So as he would kind of lean into the different parts of the body, and my partner would kind of go, oh, ow. And he'd say, oh, oh. <laughs> and there's this sense of, you know, he, he kind of acknowledged that he knew that he wasn't really creating the pain, um, that he said really good body work I guess in this sense, is revealing what's already there. It's revealing these tensions, places of holding, of contraction. You know, a lot of our work in the Dharma is like that. It can feel at times as if our suffering started the first moment the retreat began. That's really when suffering started. It started this morning, once the quiet really was settling in, or 30 minutes into a sitting. It's like these other uh, experiences, the, the edges of our, of our comfort zone starts to press in on us, and it really feels as if it's the cause of why we're, why we're suffering, why we're hurting. You know, from the point of view of the Dharma, these conditions are here. They're part of our mind, just like the body has its tensions, places of contraction. In a way, every time we suffer, we can be grateful. And I, I believe in Tibetan practices, you really do offer gratitude to those circumstances and beings that are irritating you because they're revealing something that's already present. There's a word, Pali word called anusaya, which means latent, latent tendencies. So when we feel oftentimes that uh, life has been going along smoothly and then we come into contact with something that really hurts, I mean, there's a lot of suffering. What's happening is these tendencies that are dormant in the mind start to get revealed, they become active. And one of the things that happens in our practice, in awareness, is that these tendencies that are a little bit more difficult to see become revealed. We start to see our own nature, our own patterns. I like the analogy of coming into a dark room 
where you can't see anything. You turn the lights off at night and you can't see what's in the room if there's no external light. And you don't really need to do much. Just by lying there waiting, slowly we start to see something, see some of the contours of the room, the shape of the bed, the furniture. And this is what our practice allows, affords us, is we really start to see more clearly. And it's so easy to say that, you know, life is going along really well, I don't suffer. Um, and it's amazing that just by showing up here, and we haven't asked you to suffer, that hasn't been part of the instructions, and yet, I'd be really delighted if it's true. Has anyone not suffered today? I'd love to see it. Just anyone not felt like they suffered? Uh, And who suffered today? Just a little bit. (laughs) Okay. That's pretty unanimous. Yeah, and this is the, uh, really the first noble truth that the Buddha was pointing to, that there is suffering. This is real. It's what we, it's what we experience. We're all united in this predicament. We're very sensitive beings. We have, as Matthew was saying, the body so sensitive. Our heart, our mind, very sensitive. It's so easy to be impacted by the world around us in ways that we start to armor against it so we can feel a sense of safety and security. I was thinking about the nature of a turtle. And it's, I love turtles, by the way, but in this analogy, the turtle is not the right, uh, not the right creature to emulate. So... It's like the shell of the turtle, and we form a shell. Every time we get injured by something, we want to turn away from it, so we, we close down that little part of our life. You know, I don't want to feel that, so we don't go there. I don't want to talk to you because it hurts. We form a little layer of shell, and I don't like to feel shame and embarrassment, so we avoid other circumstances, and our life gets more protected, and we begin to really shelter ourselves. And then if things get really bad, we pull our arms in and our head in and you're just hiding out in, our, in the, the shell of the turtle. This is the shell of our life. And in a way that's, you know, we're being compassionate to the best that we know how. We're trying to do our best. How do we find refuge in a, in a world that isn't always loving, isn't always mindful and caring. And where is the shelter? Before I came to the Dharma, my life was a total mess. 
feels like a little bit less of a mess now. But circumstances can definitely rile my mind up still. And at one point, you know, I, was, I had been struggling uh, with the path in medicine. I was in medical school. And every, every little aspect of life was overwhelming. Everything would confuse my mind. I had no stability, no real home. Matthew was mentioning this sense of being at home in the practice. So I really felt a spiritual crisis and I didn't have any understanding of there being any real paths out there. So I did what I knew best, which was to head off to India and go looking for something. And I wandered around. and started dressing like a sadhu. So I thought maybe the sadhus know what they're doing. So I was wearing a yellow lungi and I, one of my, actually both of my brothers were with me at that time. So my three brothers and I were wandering around India looking like sadhus. Sadhu is like a holy man. And they walk around barefoot and grow their hair out really long. So I had a really long beard and hair all tied up. And, and I think I might have looked very spiritual um, to people, but it didn't bring me any closer to any understanding. And then you know, I heard wind of meditation, that word really popped into my mind and someone said it and I thought, yeah, that sounds good. You know, and since then, after my first retreat, it was so clear that there's some extraordinary possibilities when we stay with our experience long enough. There's maybe been one of the either Gwenka or Manindraji, two two different teachers in India. One of, them, one of them said that if you want to understand your mind, sit down and observe it. If you want to understand your heart, sit down and observe it. <coughs> the sitting down part is not that important, but this turning towards our experience. So we've been talking a lot about the quality of awareness and mindfulness. You know, what we start to notice is so much of what we consider ourself is really not in our control. We go through the day, we have an intention to be awake and be mindful. We sit down, drowsiness comes, 
boredom comes. We walk around, we evaluate ourselves, we're evaluating other people. Who's doing that? I like to think that there's like some puppeteer inside pulling all the levers of our mind. You know, these are just habits. It's like the, the tendencies, the energies, the, the grooves of our, you know, of our, our own mind. And when we don't um, control our experience, this invitation in the Dharma is to really begin to rest, relax, allow everything that we need to understand about ourselves starts to be revealed. A lot of our experience might be kind of hazy, dull. So on a day like this, where it's kind of foggy out and misty, it's quite similar to a lot of the mind states. And can we simply recognize, all right, there's nothing clear right now. That's what's happening. So we can have a, a sense of clarity even when the mind is dull. We don't need to have a clear sky to see what's already there. This is the nature of fog. We just sort of be with it, resting back, allowing. There's a lot of different ways of giving Dharma talks. Just you know, this particular orientation that I'm exploring at the moment is well. It's it's um, practiced a lot in the Buddhist countries in Thailand and Burma, where you kind of see where it goes. You're sort of open to the moment. What I love about that is our practice really is a mirror of this showing up. And we don't know what's going to come next in our practice. And I just love the possibility of being present and experienced, developing a sense of trust that whatever happens is in the field of the Dharma. And whatever arises for me, whatever, whatever arises for you, this is all allowed. This is the Dharma. This is a true coming home. It feels to me so real. I don't have to pretend that things are otherwise. part of the power of being in silence together. It gives us a chance to not have to kind of 
justify our existence, demonstrating something about ourselves. We can really just recognize who we are for what we are, that this is good enough. Having a body, having a heart, being a human being in this moment, it's good enough. And that goes against so many tendencies of what we've been told, at least what I've been, what I've picked up from culture and circumstances. A lot of the monastics and in, I think I heard this from Tibetans, is that there's a sense of deep well-being if you're born into the Tibetan culture. I think it's probably true in, in different Buddhist cultures because there is a sense of, there's a, it's a beautiful opportunity to be in the human form, the human body and mind that it's already a gift because there's this opportunity to develop the mind and heart, this opportunity to liberate our own minds. And yet that basic message of goodness is so often not transmitted in our culture that we're not good enough the way we are We have to change something. Something needs to be different about the way we are, the way we look, the way we feel, the way we speak, the way we think. When I've been mentioning right view, this is the orientation to experience that really turns us towards that understanding that what's happening is perfect. It's perfect because it's already happening and the causes and conditions are there for it to happen. When I really take that kind of message in and I really take that in, What is it really like to meet this moment as if it doesn't have to change? The practice can feel so light, so effortless, because whatever whatever is happening is a good enough experience. If the mind is distracted, the mind is distracted. The mind is confused, agitated, judging, the mind is confused and agitated and judging. The heart is overwhelmed and anxious. It's simply overwhelmed and anxious. And then the practice becomes very simple. We're just right with it. The simple knowing, simple awareness. And it's not that we suddenly are liberated, that we know all the deeper habits of mind. But as far as what's presenting itself, we can really meet that. 
with a sense of, this is it. This is what I can be with. And this is allowed. And this sense of welcoming. Can I welcome this? Can the unpleasant experiences, the pains in the knees, the aches in the heart, the sleepiness, can it be welcomed? Where is our edge? This is pointing to the attitude of the practice. So that phrase that I'd mentioned from Saito Tejaniya, that awareness alone is not enough. Very often, if I were to ask you, you know, what are you experiencing? You ask someone else, you know, you, do you know what you're experiencing? And as soon as they become mindful, you know, and they touch into it, you know, they might be aware of what's happening. But is it a relationship that can reveal the qualities of what's there? Are we oriented to the moment so we can see the experience for what it is? So when we're reminded that what's arising is what's arising in this moment, it's a mind state, it's seeing, or it's hearing, it's either mind or body. And when we say mind, I mean heart and mind, the whole, the whole realm. Earlier today, When I'd asked Matthew how his sitting was, I didn't ask him if I could share this, but I trust it's okay. He's strong. (laughs) Matthew has a way with words, you might have noticed. If you haven't yet, you will notice. (laughs) He kind of summarized the entirety of the Dharma by, I said, what were you experiencing? And he said, clinging, he said, clinging is hopeless. That's all. <laughs> so whatever he was going through, he noticed clinging is hopeless. So if you don't know, in the second noble truth, when we look at the cause of our suffering, what's named is clinging. We're entangled with our experience. We cling to it. We cling to the body. We cling to unpleasant sensations. We identify with our state of mind, our sleepiness. This is who I am. I am judgmental. I am doubtful. I am worried. I'm resentful. I'm hopeful. I'm happy. Whatever it is that's arising, our tendency is we identify, we cling. The reason why the attitude of the mind is so powerful when we really look at that is because wanting, greed, and aversion, resisting, binds us to experience. It makes us cling. We cling when we're relating to whatever is arising through an attitude that is either pushing or pulling or 
not knowing and we're confused, delusion tends to be uh, identified deeply with experience. We get enmeshed in the tangle of everything that's arising. So when we check, what are we aware of? And we notice something. When we begin to stay with it long enough, we can ask more questions. Is there a sense of identification with what's arising? Is the mindfulness just like a mirror, clearly reflecting whatever's there? This mirror-like quality of mindfulness and awareness. So that is the nature of mindfulness. That is the nature of awareness. What comes along with it is our habits of mind, our liking, our agitation, our frustration, our clinging, our identification. And as we stay with our experience, these other factors of mind begin to be revealed. We begin to see how it is that suffering is arising in this moment. Why is there this sense of struggle of leaning into the next moment or leaning out of this moment, trying to get out of the current experience, wanting a pleasant experience. What's happening? What is that? A big uh, turning point in my, really in my practice happened one time when I uh, was having some really pleasant experiences. And it's those types of meditation experiences that we feel like we're doing all this hard work so that we can finally get those really nice experiences, either touching into some sense of emptiness or this universal awareness or infinite love. And that's like the real good stuff. That's what our minds tell us. That's what we're really aiming for. So after a few months of being in the monastery in Burma, I was kind of touching into one of those realms of experience and I was very protective around it. And I remember wanting, I didn't want anyone to disturb me. And so I was kind of, there's a lot of talking at the monastery. And so I was being quite protective of my practice and we'd scurry back to my room so I could keep at it. Kind of during a peak moment in one of those uh, unfoldings, it was right before an interview with my teacher. And so I went in to him and I've shared this with a few of you, so you might've heard this, but so I gave him this long description, really giving him all the wonderful details of this great experience. And honestly, he could care less about what I was sharing. He just sort of, he looked at me and he said, so? (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, where is it now? What did you understand? The real lesson came actually, thinking about it right now, which is, I really, I, I 
spent the next month in deep resentment, <laughs> irritation. I said, he doesn't understand me. He doesn't get it. I've laid out my heart. You know, I'm putting in all this, this practice. And it revealed to me how attached I was to my good experiences. I was still chasing, still wanting the next hit, the next high. And life is really not like that. Life is much more ordinary. And real wisdom comes from the most ordinary experiences. We'll get, you know, plenty of the spiritual goodies that come along with the practice, but they're impermanent. They're impersonal. We can't create them. And when the conditions are not there anymore, they go. They change. Tejaniya was, this my teacher was describing one of his ordinary experiences and the insight that he got. He was taking a shower. Um, this kind of insight apparently can't happen here because we're not allowed, allowed scented soaps. So he was showering and using a very strong scented soap. So, you know, the soap was there and the aroma, you know, and the, from the, the scented products came in. And he had this strong insight that it's the nose that smells. It's the nose that smells. And his first thought was, I'm going to go tell my family. <laughs> and then his second thought was, well, they'll think I'm crazy. <laughs> so an ordinary experience, it's the nose that smells. On the level of an insight, it's something radically different. And it points to cause and effect. Points to this impersonal phenomenon that is simply happening. He didn't choose for smelling to arise. Smelling happens when conditions are there. So depending on our level of the mindfulness and the seeds that are available, ordinary experiences become revealed and we understand them on, much, on a, a much different level, which is why we really don't need to go searching for something different to be happening. Whatever is happening really is good enough. If it's the breath, it's good enough. If it's anxiety, it's good enough. I think I've said this a few times, but I'm just you know, really emphasizing the point because it's our basic tendencies of mind will go in the opposite direction. It's the nature of greed to want the pleasant to get away from the unpleasant. It's the nature of aversion and confusion, to cling, to be bound up in experience. It's just the nature. And in our practice, as we really do settle in, settle back, be with our experience, these tendencies that reveal the suffering that the Buddha was pointing to can become known. We might even notice the radical shift that 
Matthew had named that it's revolutionary to go from being involved and overwhelmed in an experience to becoming aware of it. That that's already a radical shift. Oftentimes when I've been caught in a mood, it's amazing that when I remember that it's a mood and now I'm aware of the mood, I'm no longer entangled as much. I'm not as gripped by it. There's a sense of the suffering of what's still there, it's still unpleasant, and now there's a knowing of it. The unpleasantness of it, the suffering of it. And we're a little bit less identified. We're a little bit less feeding it. That's huge. Little steps like that is how our life is transformed. It's not radical in the sense that we don't need to do something radical to the moment. But every drop of mindfulness, every drop of awareness is inviting in this ability to be with the experience and not simply be unconsciously feeding the reactivity that we tend to be enveloped in. Right? And these habits of mind run very deep, very subtle. You know, it's pretty extraordinary when I think of how my mind was conditioned. And every time I heard a bit of Dharma, I was like, how is that, how is that possible that that's true to my mind? Like, does someone have a manual on this stuff? Like, how do they know that I'm clinging to everything? And then I take everything personally. Like, where's the manual in life? And this is in a way what the Buddha did is, he said, you wanna know about yourself? Here's a manual. You know, this is the manual on who we are. You know, we're all conditioned differently in the sense that we have our own very important life circumstances that we want to honor and open to. And there are some very universal qualities that can move us in this direction of freedom. Right? The mind that doesn't cling, the mind that sees the nature of things. Are you waiting for me to say something? <laughs> or are you just being mindful? So I thought, let me just, um, so I'm kind of more with you and getting a sense that I'm speaking to something that's alive for you. Is there anything that comes to mind that you would like to uh, 
maybe ask um, anything that I've shared or anything that's happening in your practice right now that you'd like to check in about, any questions at all. Let's see if something comes to mind. Yeah. At the end of the month, how did you see what was happening with your teacher? I know the experience that you said it lasted a month, but then what? What happened next after I saw that I had been so agitated and yeah, I start. I so how did I come to see? Uh, it's partly for the recording. How did I come to see um, that I had been caught in my reactivity and mm, the stories I was telling myself about the experience? Really, just through the perseverance of being with the experience long enough that I could feel that I was hurting myself. I was causing my own, nothing was happening, you know, and every time I'd see him, I would pretend I didn't see him, you know, and it's very un-monk-like. <laughs> but, you know, just because you're ordained doesn't mean anything changes, really, so it's, um, you know, doing my, mm. and it's like you can only, you can only suffer so long before it's like, that's just not worth it, you know, let me see what's actually happening. And yeah, this is this is what our practice affords us. If we can hang out long enough, we realize the person that we're really hurting most out of any unwholesome mind state. Even though our intention is some ways to get back at life, get back at the circumstance, the very pers- first person that suffers is ourself, right? And that's that's the suffering that arises here. And then we do create suffering around us as well. And suffering is a perfect teacher. It, it, will, it will point you directly to what needs to be seen if you're willing to be with it. And that's what we really are doing in our practice. You know, and it's natural that every time we have a little bit of suffering that we want to move away and, and get out of the dukkha of it. And as we gain more understanding, we realize there's something to be understood. There's something that's happening. So it's said that dukkha can be a proximate cause for a moment of mindfulness. It can wake the mind up. It usually leads towards a round of identification, delusion, ignorance, and a whole cascade of responses that results in another round of suffering. And we stay in this cycle, deepening these grooves and habits. And the, the chain that leads out of it is when it leads to a wholesome mind state. We bring in right view, we remember, oh, this is simply happening. This can be known. This is new, arising right now. Right? So it can lead into wholesome states that increasingly inclines the mind to a sense of, of ease and peace. So I think just being stubborn for a month, I could only be stubborn long enough before I was willing to actually see what was happening. And at some point, clinging to our suffering doesn't work, particularly when you're really paying attention.
kind of the, the mind and the heart and observing the mind and the heart. Mm-hmm. It's very easy to observe the mind. Can you speak about what you think the heart is and how you observe the heart? Mm. So the question is about observing. I've been saying the mind and heart and that you've been finding it easy to observe the mind, wondering about the heart. So what, so can I ask you, what do you find easy about the mind and what do you take the mind to be when you observe it? Um, the mind is like a real plane in my head. Okay. Right. Yeah, yeah. So real playing in the mind, stream of thoughts. So there's a word uh, in Pali is chitta. In Thai, it's similar chit. And for that, in that language, in Pali and in in these Buddhist countries, they use this word mind and heart. There, it's the same word when they say mind heart. Because we have an anatomical understanding of brain and up here and the heart here, we usually conceptually think, well, thoughts are happening up here, emotions are happening down here. But actually, if you really get sensitive to the mind, you realize, and I'm going to say mind-heart, which is there is actually no location. You can't pinpoint this. It's without location, without form without color. These are the kind of descriptors that are given in the Buddhist psychology. So there's no shape, no form, no color, no location, and yet it can be known. So ver- so in, in this language, mind and heart, is they really are pointing to this sense door, the sixth sense door, which is everything that is mind and heart, meaning your thoughts, your emotions, mind states, good mind states, unpleasant mind states, mindfulness is also in the mind-heart door, this kind of door. Um, so what you were describing is, we tend to think of that's, that's the mind, but it's actually just that everything that you know that's not a sense door, it's not a sound, a sight, a body sensation, in this way of classifying it is the mind. And it's just helpful to say mind-heart so we don't become overly caught in sort of the, intel- the intellectual mind. Um, so it's the nature of the mind to think. Oftentimes we think thoughts are a problem. And we really want to see if we have a view that thoughts are a problem. Every time thoughts come up, we'll very easily begin to relate to it as it, that it's wrong. It's bad. You know, so really having an understanding that it's the nature of the mind to think. It's the nature of the heart to beat, the lungs to breathe. So it's the nature of this heart and mind to think, to have emotions, and our job is to be present. And the one kind of caveat that we say when the mindfulness is still warming up is not to watch the thoughts, because we get seduced right into the story and that tends to weaken the mindfulness. But if you can check the mind and it's still aware that thoughts are happening and you're, you're just noticing the mind's thinking, that's great. You're seeing the impersonal nature of it, that it's changing and that it impacts the emotions and the emotions impact how the body feels. And you're seeing a cause and effect process of one moment after another, allowing the Dhamma to reveal itself. So knowing the heart is, is knowing how you feel in this language of heart, you know, knowing how you feel, calm, anxious, sad, 
And sometimes, you know, not much is being revealed, just hanging out with that. There's not much happening. But also interest. We know interest through the heart door. Is the mind interested? Is it distant and bored? Does that kind of... Yeah, great. Did you want to... Mm-hmm. I think, like, I find that people who really feel sure of themselves a lot <laughs> to seem more deluded than people who are, you know, always questioning and, um, mm, yeah. I, I could look it up, but I don't. Want yeah. To <laughs> you can. She can. She can Google it, but. <laughs> the side note. I was going to fix something once, and um, a friend of mine said. Do you Google know that, or do you really know it? <laughs> kind of pointing to that kind of difference of like real wisdom, or like is that just sort of like you know you kind of Googled it and now you know what to do? Um, <laughs> so, you know, when we look at those three root causes that are named, the three root poisons of the mind, poisons in the sense of they are what really are at the basis of suffering. And the Buddha was very practical. He was, he was teaching suffering and the end of suffering. And the causes as being de- greed, hatred, and delusion, or greed, aversion, and confusion, that, that tendency. Those factors of mind give rise to a plethora of other states of mind. So every time we're feeling, you know, a, some state that's agitating, fear, and we're identified with it. We could say that has some aversion in it. So everything, any state of mind, pride, has egoic clinging and probably has delusion and, and uh, unliking, you know, leaning in, greed. So they, they, those ingredients just mix to give rise to a lot of other things. Doubt uh, doesn't, if it's doubt in the sense of it's confused, doesn't know how to practice, is just the mind that's spinning with doubting, doubting, not sure. That's a hindrance when it's in the meditating mind. As soon as you see the doubt, it's now another object that's being known. So any hindrance can become simply the next thing that's being known when we identify it. Any habit of mind, you know, clinging and aversion and these these qualities they're naturally going to meet what comes. They're going to present themselves over and over again. And our job really is to recognize them, starting to see that they're there. They're already there, guaranteed. They're playing themselves out. And it's not our job to get rid of them, it's to notice them. My teacher would often say it's wisdom's job that uproots it. And wisdom arises when we've been with an experience long enough that we really understand that it burns, it hurts, and the mind lets it go. Right? So we can be with the experience long enough and then we can see how that relationship is where the struggle is. So, so delusion, that quality of not knowing the reality, can give rise to doubt, it can give rise to certainty. I know everything, I have nothing to learn you know, this kind of stance, which, you know, blocks any understanding. And just to say delusion, it's said, 
because it's it doesn't know the reality of the nature of the current experience it arises with every unwholesome mind state so greed the sense of greed pulling in attaching and the aversion those both arise with delusion as well so delusion is always present because it doesn't know the reality of something and it's our not knowing the nature of something that we mistakenly identify and cling to changing phenomenon that are simply arising and passing passing away okay Right, yeah. Um, on some level, I feel like this path is so brave and also so confusing. Right. Like everything kind of, everything is like, has a second clause attached to it and like it keeps falling back on itself. And it's, it's, so it's really hard in the sense that like, so I'll close my eyes and then it's like, okay, just be with everything. Right, right. And it gets scary then like, what do I do with that? Right. Like, Right, right. I'm like just free falling, and then it's like, do I bow to that? Do I feel sometimes a little bit scary? I think is a good way to describe it. And I don't know, I know that what brought me here and the reason I've been doing meditation is because of the compassion inside of me. I've been attracted to the final product, but then I keep hearing, well, there really shouldn't be a final product. You know what I mean? So it's really. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is very brave. Um, I can't do justice to the question, so I won't. I won't try to um, just repeat what you said. Um, In the teachings, you know, the Buddha gave a lot of skillful means. So the, it's filled with what's called the upaya, upaya's skillful means. And it can feel like, wow, there's so much to do. There's so many, you know, caveats of this, and then maybe this. And, and yet, I do find as practice settles in and there's a, there's a kind of trust that builds, it gets very simple in some ways. And, and anytime the mind is getting very complicated around it, you can just very simply recognize again, well, what's happening? Oh, the mind is thinking about what to do next. And it might be that it's doubting. It's not sure, or it's fearful. And so although uh, it, it, you know, it can feel as if there's so much going on, if, the mind is getting overwhelmed to really just simplify again. 
you know, and I think someone had summarized the entirety of the teaching around the simple phrase of don't cling. And it can all boil down to clinging causes suffering and not clinging brings the end of suffering. And yet that's not something that we can practice. And so when you were saying, uh, I'm watching my experience and I'm trying not to attach, in some ways it's like that's already maybe doing too much because we really just want to see what is happening. And what's happening is there's an attachment and then there's a sense of fear. And then what happens next? You know, and so just being kind of gentle with that and that whole kind of heart space, it really was kind of the essence of your question is, where is that sense of compassion? How does that come in? You know, it sounds like you're familiar with metta, loving kindness practices, compassion practices, and that's a very deep part of the Dharma. Um, I didn't orient in that way when my teacher was teaching me he really, you know, he guided much more on the level of true mindfulness, really true mindfulness, in its essence has compassion. It has loving kindness. And that's where in checking the, the attitude, the how is the heart relating to experience, it is a deeply compassionate move to receive what's there. Can I be with this? Fear comes up. Can I be with this? And this is where there is a, you know, we need, need to monitor our own experience. If the mind is getting unbalanced, so whatever experience is there is impacting the mind in such a way that it's too much to deal with. I'm no longer able to see this moment clearly. It's overwhelming the mind. The compassionate response, there's a, you know, a few different things you can do, but one of the things we do that you can do is let the mind settle down, the mind and heart. Move the attention to something that feels easier to be with. But if you can be with that fear, remembering that this is an emotion, can I be with this? Right, so can the sense of compassion open to this, this mind state? Is this fear welcome? This is the next thing that's being known? Is it being met with aversion? Am I entangled in it? Right, so there's that that quality of heart and mind, for me, moment to moment mindfulness is deeply, deeply compassionate because it's really receiving experience in a non-judgmental way and to really understand the nature of something, to really be with it over time, that's what's going to really liberate the mind. And we do these other practices so, so that we can grow these factors of mind so that they can stabilize. So we can do some compassionate practices, loving kindness practices. And yet what ultimately liberates the mind is when we're right with experience and we see it as it is. And that, that has those qualities of, of kindness, compassion. You know, that's, that's right in the heart of all the, everything that's being thrown at us. Does that kind of touch into, you want to just do one follow-up if there's something else that's lingering? Yeah, great. Yeah, that's fine. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah, practice, we, we will give a lot of different things to practice with. And, um, you know, one of the things that my teacher would say was, in order to keep the practice very simple, he would give them three yogi jobs. And say, so if you're doing more than that, sometimes it's too much. So some, he would say, you know, just check to see if you're aware. Well, he'd actually he'd start with right view. I'm sorry. Is there right view in the mind? So are, am I seeing what's happening as simply being something that's knowable, an experience that's being known? So is right view, right? So that we're not identified and overwhelmed and entangled in experience. Do I see what's arising? And is there awareness? And then continue doing that. So it's kind of like repeat. And with people who have got too complicated, who would make it just, just do your three jobs, supporting a moment of being with experience, seeing it as nature, and then trusting the continuity so that our experiences can really uh, reveal themselves. So take just one last. Greed? Yeah. Right. Um, I start to feel like there is a sense of, um, like something that uh, one of either of you was talking about was around like greed, but then wanting to kind of the clinging to like wanting better experiences. Mm-hmm. Right. And trying to sort of reconcile that with the idea of wanting to improve things. That right. Like, you know, Yeah. You know, this is, yeah. Right. Yeah. So the nature of greed and (laughs) the wanting better experiences, and yet the wanting is oftentimes what leads us into practice and leads us into taking care of things in a wholesome way. And this is really our own discovery comes in where, when is the greed mingled into an attachment to results? And that's where that kind of greed that clings gets revealed as being a, 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 the type of greed that, is, that leads to a sense of, of dukkha, of suffering. There's a wholesome state of greed that's described as chanda, which actually is the, is the spiritual, it's a wholesome wanting. You know, it's what motivates us to practice, motivates us to show up motivates us to be with this difficulty and be right in the heart of things. So that that quality doesn't have to be, it's like we're not making ourselves, a, you know, race everything. There's so many wholesome factors of mind that are described in the Dharma. You know, and we really can start to, as we sense our own experiences more and more, we get, we really can reveal, it becomes revealed, what motivations really serve a sense of well-being. And what motivations are there that actually don't serve, that tend towards a sense of contraction or misalignment with the way things are, 
right? And that's sort of a discovery. So you're just looking at when I plan, how much planning has greed in it, and how much planning has just the feeding of the habit of planning mind, you know, and just recognizing is this actually useful? And when we bring that clarity, then we realize, oh no, that's simply the mind ruminating and we're back awake again. But this is really where we discover for ourselves, uh, you know, the more nuanced states of these things that come packaged together when we get interested and see what is greed like? And greed is, they say greed is oftentimes a little bit more difficult to know for a lot of people than aversion. Because aversion feels so obvious as an agitating state, we don't like it. It's so clear, usually it's we don't like this thing that's happening. And to feel the aversion playing out is very obvious. Greed is more, well, we're getting what we like, so why shouldn't I? (laughs) And the teachings there are really around to recognize the satisfaction, to understand the danger of the clinging to experience, that which is subject to change when we cling to it, and then to realize the release the satisfaction, the danger, and the release. And so it's not to say we don't get satisfied from our wanting. We do. We get that a tiny little hit, but it's, it changes. And so that's pointing to, and greed is just, we like things, and we're leaning in. It's so hard to feel that energy for a while until we really understand, oh, that's the nature of greed. It has that sense of things aren't good enough. I got to get, I got to get. Yeah, great. So it's, can your question wait till, okay, we've gone a bit over. All right, so thank you for your very kind attention. And we have about 25 minutes or so for just moving around or sitting more if you want to. We'll have dinner at 5.30. I believe our next sitting back in here is 6.45. Okay, thank you for your practice. Oh, and yes, I have an announcement. So, um, 